Hello, and welcome to the Scriptures Are Real podcast. This is the podcast where we talk about elements of the scriptures that have become real to us so that we can draw more power out of them because we need the power of the scriptures in our lives. I'm your host, Kerry Mielstein, and I'm happy to have and excited to have back with us. Uh, it was just a few episodes ago that we had with us uh, Dr. Josh Sears, or Joshua Sears, uh, my, my good friend and colleague here in my department. And uh, you heard a little bit about him in our last episode on Job. But uh, I guess that's been about a month and a half. But uh, at this point, I think it's worth bringing up that Josh has worked on Isaiah a lot. He's he's uh, been spent the summer, I think, prepping to teach the Isaiah course. Uh, he has been writing articles on uh, Latter-day Saint approaches to Isaiah and uh, and so on. And it's just, I think, in the last uh, several months, been swimming in Isaiah almost constantly. And uh, so I'm excited to have him on here to help us through Isaiah. Welcome, Josh. Hi, good to be back. <laughs> Thank you. So did I describe that accurately? What what did I miss and what you've been doing to, to uh, work on Isaiah? Of course, you did uh, work on it in graduate school and so on, I'm sure. But uh, w- what did I miss? No, that sounds good. Isaiah is always something that just draws you, right? Because it's there in the Old Testament, the New Testament, the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants. Isaiah is kind of everywhere. So it's hard to avoid Isaiah, but it's it's uh, fun when you dive into it. Yeah, yeah it is. It's, it's fun stuff. So uh, before we jump into uh, whatever uh, you have prepared for us, I uh, just a few minutes ago, just before we started recording, I, I kind of sprung this idea on Josh, and he's uh, always kind enough to just jump right in and swim wherever we're swimming. Uh, in our uh, last week's episodes, we introduced the idea of multiple fulfillments, that there are, uh, Isaiah's prophecies are written in a way that they are often intended to have fulfillments in more than one time period. And that's something that is a real key to understanding Isaiah, but sometimes it makes it a little bit hard for us to, to figure out how to do that and uh, there are some elements, actually, I, we have some fantastic aids in our scriptures that uh, are very helpful, but sometimes can make uh, some of these things a little bit more difficult. And Josh has been kind of looking at that lately. So I asked if he would share with us a little bit of what he learned, that it might help us with this idea of, of finding multiple fulfillments in Isaiah. Yeah, so what I'm thinking about specifically here is the chapter headings that we have in our scriptures. Um, and everyone's familiar with those, right? Um, it's basically in the Latter-day Saint edition of the Bible, it's the only kind of built-in commentary that we have to help us as we go through. So they can be enormously helpful, but there's also some limitations with how they work. So that's just what I kind of want to run through really quick. Um, and, and it might be useful to just kind of do a little background on these. I mean, when they the church was preparing the current version of the scriptures, I mean, we've made some changes, but most of what we have in terms of footnotes and headings and topical guide and that kind of thing was in the late 1970s to come out in the, the early 80s, uh, starting yeah. in 1980. Um, and you're too young to remember that. You may not even have been born, but I remember when it happened. Uh, and uh I, I I think sometimes we take the footnotes and the chapter headings as commentary or as a doctrinal uh, interpretation, uh, which I know they were not intended to be. And I've even had discussions with uh, the head, uh, the general authority. I won't use his name because he didn't give me permission, but the uh, general authority who at the time was the head of the uh, church scripture committee. And I said, sometimes my students take these to be uh as if they're authoritative uh, interpretation 
And uh, how would you have us uh, answer that? And I was almost afraid to ask the question because I thought he would do exactly what he did, which was, well, what do you do? <laughs> and I, I told him, well, I, uh, I tell them that they're helpful and they're, they're intended to guide us and direct us and help us find things and, and work our way through the scriptures more. But they're not intended to be treated as scripture. They're intended to be aids to scripture and we should treat them and look at them differently than scripture. They're not authoritative. And uh, he just said, OK, everyone in favor of that, raise your hand and everyone raise their <laughs> hand. And I, I guess that uh, just kind of uh, gave us a little bit of that, gave me at least a little bit of validation to that approach. And so I think it's worth our understanding that while they are designed to help us use the scriptures, they are not scripture. Yeah. And I can give you a, a quote here to back that up. This is straight from Elder Bruce R. McConkie, who is uh, heavily involved in this edition of the scriptures. Yeah, so this probably is what more than says. anyone in, in all of this paraphernalia that yeah, we have. He's in the, the scriptures. general authority that was the most involved in the in the trenches getting all the the um, study aids made. And this is what he said. The new study aids include the Joseph Smith translation items, the chapter headings, the topical guide, the Bible dictionary, the footnotes, the gazetteer, and the maps. None of these are perfect. They do not of themselves determine doctrine. There have been and undoubtedly now are mistakes in them. Cross-references, for instance, do not establish and never were intended to prove that parallel passages so much as pertain to the same subject. They're aids and helps only. So that's from his talk, The Bible, A Sealed Book, that he gave to, um, I think, Seminary and Institute faculty. Wow. Um, I'd love it if you sent me that quote when we're all done here. That would be great. So. Yeah. Thank so that's, you. you know, as as he who, you know, made and supervised all these study aids, I think that's an important insight right there that you have the scripture text and that's what's canon and that's that's yeah. what's the official stuff. And then the study aids all around them are helps and aids, but they're on a different level. They're not the same as the scriptures. Right. Very important stuff. Very useful stuff. Uh, I think most of the time quite inspired, but uh, but not scripture. Yeah. And they faced limitations, right? Just the fact that they had limited space to work with. Yeah. The, the chapter headings, for example, they're trying to keep it, you know, fairly small and brief, which means that sometimes some nuances you could have there had you had more room just can't be there given the nature of the space. Exactly. So the, ch the chapter headings themselves, actually, Bruce R. McConkie was primarily in charge of writing those. He at the time was considered the member of the 12 that, you know, was just the scriptorian, the one who could, you could say, hey, tell me about Psalm 12. And he would just come up with it, right? Uh, he knew his scriptures backwards and forwards. So he was considered a very natural fit to go and write these chapter headings. But I think it's worth taking a step back and looking at what was he trying to do with these. And that can help us figure out how to best use the chapter headings. So the chapter headings, one thing to note about them is sometimes they provide a summary of a chapter, but sometimes they don't do that so much as kind of select two or three passages from the chapter that Elder McConkie felt were extra important and that we needed to be sure not to miss. Yeah, yeah, especially so the when a chapter is long and dense, as most Isaiah chapters are, all he could do, given his little teeny space, was highlight. Yeah, so and especially when the chapter is not in a narrative format, when it doesn't tell a story. That's usually what he'll end up doing is saying, well, this verse here, that's an important one. This line here is important for Latter-day Saints. And this one here, the New Testament cites it. So he, he'll select those three passages. And it's just important to recognize that that's what he's doing, because those three passages may not tell you what the chapter as a whole is about 
or it's right. not giving you a big structure. It's just kind of highlighting some some of the greatest hits from the chapter. Right. And um, sometimes so we confuse it and we think it's doing something that it wasn't intending to do. And I think that's when uh, if, if we'll allow it to do what it was intended to do, we're in good shape. It's when we try and make it do something that it's not intended to do that that those aids can become on AIDS. <laughs> yes. And and here's and here's where we get into this in terms of multiple fulfillments of prophecies. So in class, I run into this a lot because my students will have their scriptures, <laughs> either uh, paper or on their phones. And when they go to a chapter of Isaiah, the first thing they'll read and that they'll see is that heading at the top. And that very much frames how they're going to see the chapter it follows. And I have to give, I tell, um, I don't tell them don't use the chapter headings. I think they're very helpful, but I have to teach them a couple caveats and things to be aware of as they use these. So one is this. So like, like you've talked about, a prophecy of Isaiah can have multiple applications. There's almost always an immediate application, some way that it was relevant in Isaiah's day in ancient Israel. Yeah. And for many of them, there's also an application in the meridian of time, the lifetime of Jesus, um, and or an application in the latter days and the time leading up to the second coming and sometimes other settings as well. So they can have a lot of layers and complexity to this. The problem is Elder McConkie in that tiny, tiny space he had to summarize each chapter, there's usually not room for the kind of nuance of saying, well, it could mean this, or it could mean this, or it could mean this, or it can mean this. There's not the space for that. So as I've gone through and I've tried to carefully study his approach to these um, chapter headings, I think I have kind of figured out what his approach was. And it was basically this. If there's a part of Isaiah that the New Testament uses to apply to the life of Jesus, uh, that's the interpretation that he'll give of that passage in the chapter heading. If the Book of Mormon or the Doctrine and Covenants uses a passage from the chapter to talk about the last days, Elder McConkie will highlight that. Um, and I think he's focusing on the life of Jesus and the last days because in his mind, those are the things that are most relevant for us, learning about the life of the Savior and our own times. And if the chapter doesn't have either of those, then by default, he'll give the application that it has in ancient Israel. So that's fine. I get what he's doing. Um, and I don't know how much I could have done differently than that, <laughs> given the limited right. space. But it does create a potential problem that people might misunderstand where they'll see the chapter hitting interpret it uh, a certain passage as the life of Jesus or the last days. And they'll come away thinking, oh, that is the interpretation. That is the only interpretation. That is it. That's what it means. It can mean nothing else, <laughs> which right. then leads us into problems because you're not getting all the layers on the nuances of all the other possible meanings. Right. And I don't think it's what Elder McConkie or anyone else on the scripture committee intended when they uh, wrote and approved those chapter headings. Yeah. And you you read his writings. He he was very much on board with this idea that there's multiple fulfillments, right? He knew that. Yeah. Yeah. But the problem is the chapter heading gives the illusion that, you know, this is the one meaning for this verse. And this is the one meaning for this verse and the one meaning for that other verse. Yeah. Um, now, I, I actually crunched some numbers on this. Um, so I went through all the chapter headings in the book of Isaiah and I broke it up into little chunks. You know how it'll have a phrase and then it have a dash kind of separating yeah. it. Then another phrase, then a dash. And it'll have, you know, two, three, four, five of these little phrases per chapter. Um, and there's about 170 of these little phrases throughout the 66 chapters of Isaiah. And I went through and I, I did some um, calculating how many of these phrases interpret Isaiah as being about ancient Israel 
how many are about the life of Jesus and how many are about the last days. And then there was a category for other, which meant it was just a generic principle, like trust in the Lord, right? That could apply. That's not really historical. That can apply anywhere. So what I noticed uh, was interesting. So about 25% of the time, Elder McConkie interprets in the headings that the Isaiah passages are about ancient Israel. So 25% of the time. Um, 30, uh, 19% of the time, he interprets it about the life of Jesus. So just slightly below that. And 45% of them interpret um, the passage to be about the last days. So, um, which is interesting. Again, most, not necessarily all, but most of the Isaiah chapters you can read as having some kind of application in ancient Israel. Yeah, I'd um, say over 90%. Yes, something that would be about my number two, but he he only interprets it that way 25% of the time and then 45% of the time it's about the last days. So I know a lot of people just talking to them, it seems like based on the chapter hittings alone, as they go through Isaiah, their impression is that Isaiah talks directly, uniquely, and often about the last days, which I think I think definitely all these applications are there, but they might not realize that this also can have additional meanings in other settings. Right. And that's where it can be in, uh, good to know that Elder McConkie's may be giving you the interpretation he thought was most relevant, like the fastest way to get a good solid takeaway from it. But it's not um, exhausting all your possibilities with this. Good. Well said. Well, perfect. Uh, we don't need to spend a lot of time on this idea, but I do think it's helpful as as we're trying to really study Isaiah as a church right now. To, to have that in mind, uh, again, as I really tried to highlight in the, the episode before this, last week's episode, that uh, when you understand that original context, I think it helps you understand the context for our day all the better. And that's what we want is to open up our minds. Let's not limit Isaiah in a way that I don't think he intended for himself to be limited. He intended to uh, both uh, speak to his current audience and to a Latter-day audience and let's let him do both. And when we let Isaiah do what he's doing, rather than put him in some little boxes, when we let him do what he's doing, we'll find more meaning for our day and, and a better understanding of it and better personal application and so on. And so uh, when it becomes real in that way, I guess that's one of the, the elements of it. When we can make it real about them and what they were going through then we can make it real about us and what we're going through. And so that was really yeah, helpful. I, Thank and you. I know you've made this point before that if you understand it in its ancient Israelite context first, it actually enriches and helps you make even better sense of applications that can come later. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, I mean, we won't, in this uh, episode, we won't cover all of the chapters that are assigned for this week because it's like a third of the book of Isaiah or something like that. Well, I mean, so they're just giving us a couple of signed chapter, you know, selected chapters. But if you were to go from all of the the, the material from the first chapter they assigned to the last chapter that's not assigned for next week, um, it's like a third of Isaiah or more. We're not going to do all of that. And I actually will do some of that in... Uh, uh, like uh, follow him podcast and as I'm a guest on some other podcasts. And so uh, in some of those, I'll, I'll show some examples of that where look, let's look at the original context and see it helps us understand uh, our current context. So I think uh, we'll do a, probably a little of that, the two of us, but some of what we don't do, you can catch in other podcasts as well. So, well, all right. Thank you for spending some time on that, Josh. Now, why don't you just take us wherever you'd like to go on this reading and, and some elements that really spoke to you or were very real to you. Okay. Well, as I was going through this again, so we're starting in Isaiah 13, 
right here, which kind of opens up a new section of the book. Um, and there's uh, some imagery here that struck me. So I'm going to start reading in verse six. I'll just so read a few 13, is that what you said? Yeah, Isaiah chapter 13, verse six. Okay. Howl ye, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore shall all hands be faint and every man's heart shall melt and they shall be afraid. Pangs and sorrow shall take hold of them. They shall be in pain as a woman that travaileth. They shall be amazed one at another. Their faces shall be as flames. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, cruel, both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. Mm, pretty well, heavy stuff. That is heavy stuff. Um, and starting in Isaiah 13, it's... Um, about a dozen chapters that scholars will sometimes call the oracles against the nations or judgment against the nations. Yeah. Cause it goes through Babylon, Assyria, Edom, Egypt, right? Tyre, uh, often with these prophecies of doom and destruction like this. Um, so I thought it might be worth taking some time to think about that. Why is God <laughs> promising to destroy all, all these uh, groups, right? Using language like this, that's often very violent and, and graphic and um, can be unsettling for us as uh we read this now, right? Yeah, I think that's a great idea. Um, and one way to make sense of this, there's actually, um, there's a phrase that was it twice there in what I read, verse six and verse nine, the day of the Lord. That's, um, that's can sound kind of generic to us, but in Israelite prophetic books, the phrase, the day of the Lord seems to be a technical term. It's a very specific idea that meant something. So Isaiah uses it in other places. Uh, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Zephaniah, Zechariah, Malachi, lots of Old Testament prophets use this term. Um, so I think it's important for us to understand what is the day of the Lord. Um, so in Hebrew, that's the, the day of Jehovah, right? Using the right. original name that was there. And maybe I'll just interrupt you just for a second to encourage my my readers. If you're if you're driving, don't do this. But uh, <laughs> if it's possible, have your scriptures in front of you. We don't want us to re become a replacement for the scriptures. So have these out where you can look at the text and see where it says "Day of the Lord," rather than just hearing it. You may be exercising or whatever else. In which case, no big deal. I know I listen to podcasts while I make breakfast and so on. So fine. But if you can be in the text, this is always just my encouragement. Don't let uh, us become a distraction to the text we want to point you into the text so keep going yeah. josh sorry about that that uh, little uh side note yeah and this is a phrase that appears in some famous scriptures so i think we we've already kind of heard it before like for example very end of the old testament you got malachi chapter four uh verse five a very famous one for latter-day saints behold i will send you elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the lord right so mm -hmm. you get this several places right there um and basically the day of the lord for the israelite prophets is any time when jehovah is going to come in judgment and destruction against the wicked right. so um i mean sometimes i'll see definitions where it's like oh it's talking about the second coming yes the second coming can be a day of the lord maybe the biggest of all but even in ancient Israel and other times, they talk about the day of the Lord, but it's a day of the Lord. It's any time um, it could. And he could do this in all sorts of ways. It might be for an invasion, could be an earthquake, could be a plague, could be a famine. But there's a time where he's coming in judgment and destruction against the wicked. And so the prophets are warning that this is coming. You guys need to repent because if you don't, the day of the Lord is going to come. Um, and if you're righteous, it's going to be a great day of liberation and salvation, right? But if you're wicked, the day of the Lord is something that they tell people, you know, you should be fearful 
um, and and tremble at this because it will be a day where um, the social order is going to go through upheaval. Lots of there's going to be lots of death and destruction. It's going to be a big monumentous occasion. Good, very good. And I, I think you're right. A lot of times we assume it only means last days. That's just an assumption we make all the time. There are a couple of phrases that have been kind of passed around in Latter-day Saint circles as it always means this. And usually that's actually incorrect. So uh, this is one of those. So uh, thank you for that. Yeah. Now, I, I've had students where you go over this and they read the descriptions of destruction. And it's not just in the Old Testament, right? You get violent imagery in the Book of Mormon, New Testament, Doctrine and Covenants. This is all over. And I've had students who can find it very disturbing because, you know, that we go to general conference and we hear about Heavenly Father loves us and that he's patient with us and merciful. <laughs> um, and then you can you get into the scriptures and the prophets seem to be promising very um, depicting a God who's very violent and he's going to come kill people and destroy people. And that sounds like a disconnect that can be very hard to reconcile. Now, there's there's lots of ways that people make sense of this. Um, you know, people have been looking at this for centuries, centuries, obviously, making sense of the, the violence and the love all, all tied together. But in the context of Isaiah and these prophetic books, here's one important insight I think can be helpful. And it's this, that when we talk about the day of the Lord as a day when God comes in violent destruction against the wicked, that's not the full definition. So I'm going to you take that definition to like a dot 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 after let's if you finish the sentence it's this the day of the lord is a day when god comes in violent destruction against the wicked in order to save the righteous and oppressed yes that's the key insight in other words god is not simply ticked off and he's so angry he feels like he's got to come around and smack some people to you know to get his angst out that's not what the Old Testament prophets are describing. Some verses in isolation can sound like that, but you got to look at the big picture and what they do. What God is doing is coming to rescue. That is yes. what the day of the Lord is ultimately about. It's an act of rescuing. Um, in other words, we have divine on human violence in order to prevent human on human violence or human on human oppression that's systemic and been going on Um despite repeated calls nicely to ask people to stop hurting other people. Wow. And the uh, way fact, you, the, oh. you go for it. I was just going to say a, a lot of this comes down to understanding the term judge or judgment or justice correctly. Is that where you're going to go? I don't want to take away from something. That's you an important say. thing. Yeah. The King James version often will use the term judgment, whereas English has changed in the last 400 years. So today, modern translations will render the Hebrew mishpat as uh, justice, right? That right. God is seeking justice for people, not judgment for the sake of judgment. Judgment strikes us as kind of a negative term. We all fear judgment, right? But yeah. we yeah. should be fans of justice. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And in fact, I would say, uh, and I'm really just coming to understand this the last few years as I've been really trying to look at how the prophets use just judgment like the, the Isaiah in Isaiah chapter one will say, bring judgment. Right. And he's not saying go and judge people unrighteously or anything. Uh, the prophets again and again talk about bringing judgment. And usually they're talking about taking care of people who can't take care of themselves. And so as a, the more I've looked at that, that term coming from Shaphat. Right. And as you say, Mishpat and so on, all these variations of that, that word. Uh, I've come to realize it's a concept that's very similar to concepts that we find in other Near Eastern cultures and actually in a lot of cultures. So uh, I'll go, of course, to Egypt uh, and the idea of ma'at, which is everything being the way it should be. Things are made right. That's in terms of cosmic order and 
uh, social order and everything else. Everything should be the way it should be. You even get uh, just for fun. There's a similar word in Hawaiian. Pono is the word in Hawaiian. And it's just making stuff the way it should be. And that's really what I think judgment or justice is, is setting things the way they should be. So if that means if someone is starving, well, they shouldn't be starving. So we make it so that they're not. If someone uh, isn't able to take care of themselves, we take care of them so that they are taken care of. Uh, if someone has wronged us, then w things are set right and and we're we're no longer harmed by that being wronged. Uh, and And so there's an element of that that means that people will have to pay. And it's somewhat uh, maybe a little edge of it is pain because they did wrong. But a lot of it is pain because what, well, you find this in the law of Moses. Well, if they stole this from you, then they have to restore it. And in some cases, it harms you so much they have to restore twofold, right? Um, that's a punishment that's more aimed at making things right for you than it is at making it so terrible for them. Uh, although there is an element of that because that's part of what helps you remember not to do it the wrong way. But it's mostly let's make things right. And I think that plays into exactly what you're saying, this idea of of coming out in judgment to relieve someone who is oppressed is to just try and make things the way they should be. That person should not be oppressed. Yeah. And so we're going to do what it takes to get rid of that oppression. And sometimes, well, almost all the time, that takes taking the oppressor and humbling them so much that they don't have the ability to oppress so that now the oppressed can have freedom. Yeah. And in fact, in the Old Testament, there's a paradigmatic classic day of the Lord that's kind of their model for this. And that's the exodus from Egypt. Yes. Right. So, you know, picture um, Prince of Egypt or Ten Commandments or your favorite movie here. <laughs> You've got that very dramatic scene where the Israelites are running through the Red Sea. They're getting onto the opposite shore. And you've got the Egyptian army that's just chasing them through the water. And, you know, the Egyptians have been warned. They've been warned and warned and warned. But we've got a situation now where talking and pleading with them and it's not going to help. And if God does not act, a violent act right here and stop the Egyptian army, you're going to have a situation where in five minutes time, you're going to have men, women and children getting slaughtered on that far shore there. Um so God does this destructive act. The Egyptian army is obliterated. And for the Israelites, it's a violent act, yes, but it's an act of rescue, right? He yeah. saved people that otherwise would have gotten killed, dragged back to slavery. And that is what days of the Lord are all about, right? So we're forcing God's hand by rejecting the calls to do this nicely, right? To treat each other and do justice correctly. But when you get to a point where people simply reject those, those calls to treat people better, he gets to the point where he's got to act violently in order to prevent further violence and oppression. So the Old Testament prophets often look back at that Exodus story as kind of a model for this. And even Isaiah will bring up the, this Exodus imagery several times in the book. So for example... I'll just flip here to Isaiah 10, um, talks about how God is going to destroy the Assyrians as they're attacking Jerusalem um, and says, therefore, thus, this is uh, what, what Isaiah 10, verse, 20, verse 24. Thank you. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God of hosts, O my people that dwellest in Zion, so Jerusalem, be not afraid of the Assyrian. He, the Assyrian, shall smite thee with a rod and shall lift up his staff against thee after the manner of Egypt. So we're making a comparison back to the Egyptians there. But then God promises in verse 25 that in a little while, the indignation is going to cease and his anger will be in their destruction. Right. So invoking again, comparing them to the Egyptians. 
another one I like is later well, And he on, continues on for several verses there talking about like when I, I saved you at the Rock of Oreb with from the Midianites mm-hmm. and so on. So he goes on for a while with this idea of uh, when I saved you as you came out of Egypt and through the wilderness. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Keep going. No, then another example that's good. I'm just jumping all around here, right? But Isaiah chapter 43, it's talking about now uh, how God's going to destroy Babylon in order to bring the exiled Jews back to Jerusalem, right? Where they've been in captivity. Right. So this is uh, verse, say Isaiah 43, starting in verse 14. Thus saith the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. For your sake have I sent to Babylon and have brought down all their nobles and the Chaldeans whose cry is in the ships. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the creator of Israel, your King. Thus saith the Lord, which maketh a way in the sea and a path in the mighty waters, which bringeth forth the chariot and horse, the army and the power. They shall lie down together. They shall not rise. They are extinct. They are quenched as tow. Again, invoking this Exodus imagery of all the horses and the chariots going through the, the waters right there. That's very clear there. So he's comparing this rescue from Babylon to the rescue there. And they do this, the prophets do this all the time, right? And I think it's helpful and instructive to look at that Exodus story as our model here to understand the day of the Lord. Since mm-hmm. again, it helps us understand that, you know, God's not destroying the Egyptians just because on a whim right here, he is called them to let the Israelites go, repeated, um, you know, um, plagues that got worse and worse and worse. And now, you know, if he doesn't stop them, they're just going to kill everybody and re-enslave them. And this is kind of a last resort, but it is an act of rescue. Now these people, their lives are spared. They're able to move free. And that's what days of the Lord are all about, is God um, rescuing his children that are calling out to him for help. And You know, we we don't like to think about divine violence. It makes us uncomfortable, um, makes me uncomfortable. But on the other hand, I don't know what I would think about a God who hears people's suffering and cries and he could do something to stop it. And he just lets it go on forever and never puts an end to oppression and violence and injustice and and suffering and all these things that we do to each other. Yeah. And I'm like you. I've had a number of students who have in class expressed discomfort. Okay, wait, Jehovah isn't like this. Uh, I don't I don't like these verses. I've had them say, I don't like these verses. And I think they're wrong that Jehovah isn't like this. And I think, well, that's Jehovah telling you what he's like. So let's see if we can understand why. And uh, usually, if you can help them understand what you've been talking about, there's actually a tremendous amount of comfort in it. Just uh, real comfort. In fact, uh, let's go, and I'm going to have to scroll back here, but let's go to to maybe, first of all, chapter 27, um, the first verse, if I'm remembering right. Let me get there. Chapter 27, yeah. Uh, verse 1. So we're in chap- Isaiah 27, verse 1. In that day, so there's your, your phrase, right? And mm-hmm. that day the Lord, now listen to this, with his sore and great and strong sword shall punish Leviathan, the piercing serpent, even Leviathan, that crooked serpent, and he shall slay the dragon that is in the sea. Now, Leviathan is a chaos monster, right? I mean, I don't know, probably most Israelites thought of it as some great big sea serpent or dragon-like creature that was in the sea or something like that. But but what they really think of is a chaos monster, right? And this speaks to what I was talking about with like Ma'at and making things right, because there's always this battle in their minds in all the ancient world between the way things should be Right. Uh, with Mott or Judgment or Pono or however you want to say it. And 
chaos or destruction and things not being the way they should be and things being terrible. So, for example, when you are conquered by someone else and you're oppressed and you're carried away captive, that's not how they should be. That's chaos triumphing. Now, the other people probably think it's order triumphing. But anyway, that's that's chaos triumphing. Um, and, uh, and that's what you don't want. You want someone to, to set things right again. And so Leviathan here represents everything going wrong. But notice that this is describing Jehovah or Christ as having a strong sword. He's right? not a pushover. He, <laughs> no, no. And, and he comes out and he fights and he conquers on your behalf. Uh, and, and that's really important. But let's keep that in mind. So we're going to keep this image of, of Jehovah with a sword on one side. And let's just go back a, a chapter and a half to chapter 25, verse 8. Well, let's let's start uh, in verse seven. Verse seven uh, of chapter twenty-five, and he will destroy in this mountain the face of the covering cast over all people, and the veil that is spread over all the nations. So there's destruction, destruction. But look at what it does. He will swallow up death in victory, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from off all faces, and the rebuke of his people shall he take away from off all the earth, for the Lord hath spoken it. So you have these two images, right? He's got a sword, and he does stuff with this sword. He wields a sword. He's the divine warrior. But what it does is it allows him to conquer death and everything that's bad, and that allows him to wipe tears from off all faces. So it's almost because he has a sword in one hand that he can have a hanky in the other hand to wipe our tears away. But that can't happen if he doesn't have the sword. If, if he doesn't conquer death for us, if he doesn't conquer all of this bad stuff for us, then there's no wiping away of the tears. And to me, that's actually tremendously comforting to know that we have a God who will fight for us. And and I have to say that I, I'm not a person who uh, I have uh, dear friends and family members that struggle with anxiety in some pretty debilitating ways. I, I'm not someone who has really ever struggled with anxiety. Um, and, and I know that there are lots of reasons for anxiety, so please don't take this wrong. There are chemical reasons, there are traumatic reasons, all sorts of things. But I know for myself, I would feel a great deal of anxiety if I didn't know that God will conquer everything that is oppressing me, that the things that are going really wrong in my life right now and in my, my family's life, they may go wrong for a really long time. But I know that at some point they get set right because God destroys all that is impressing, oppressing my family, including anxiety. Um, and and uh, that gives me a tremendous amount of comfort. And I have to think that however much anxiety any of us are feeling, it would be more if we didn't know that in the end, God destroys all of this with his great and powerful sword. And, and so I've found when we can help people see the reason for that sword is to have the hanky in the other hand, that it's really, really comforting stuff. Yeah. This actually reminds me, I'm a, actually a big fan of the Peanuts comic strip. Oh yeah. <laughs> and there's a, there's this one strip that this reminds me of. Um, I've got it here so I can read it. You know, there's Charlie Brown and his little sister, Sally. And the strip starts off with Sally screaming at Charlie Brown. She's really upset because a bully um, pushed her down on the playground and Charlie Brown just stood there and watched. So she screams at him, a fine big brother you are. And then she goes on, that bully over at the playground pushed me down and you didn't even help me. Even if you knew he could beat you up, you should have rushed in to help me. And she storms off and Charlie Brown, just looking totally deflated, says, I think I would have made a better younger brother. 
<laughs> you know, because he knows the older brother is supposed to step yeah. up there and protect. Um, and it's like you said, it's great to know that Jesus is not only our older brother, he's our older brother who will rush in there on the playground and he'll protect us. Yeah. In fact, maybe I can bully get us. That's right. Maybe I, I mean, can even share a story. And I, I, I may have shared this before. I can't remember. But this is a story that my uh, my youngest son told me. He doesn't remember it now because it's a long time ago. And my oldest or my, my middle son didn't even know it was going on. But when my youngest son was a kindergartner and for whatever reason, they were going to have to wait a little while after school or something. I can't remember. Maybe they were there early. But my youngest son, the kindergartner, was playing on the playground and some kids started to bully him. And uh, and he was trying to figure out what to do. And his older brother, who's a sixth grader. So like and one of the he, he he's an August end of August. So he's like the oldest kid in his class. Right. Uh, his his older brother, who's a sixth grader, shows up. He didn't know anything was going on. He didn't have to say or do anything. Uh, when those kids found out that this big kid was the brother of who they were bullying, they left. Right. <laughs> Problem solved because the big brother showed up on the scene. But when I heard that story uh, and I'm going to I'm try, you know, I get emotional when I think of it because it's my child uh, and I'm glad he didn't get bullied because his big brother was there. But it also makes me think of the savior who shows up to stop the bullies in our lives. If that bully is addiction, if that bully is depression, if that bully is someone else. And, and as we've said, it may not stop immediately but sooner or later, that big brother shows up on the playground. And what a difference that makes for us. So you read Isaiah 25, 7 and 8. I'll go ahead and read verse 9 now. This has the perspective now of the people, you know, where he wiped away the tears and swallowed up death and all that. Verse 9, it shall be said in that day, lo, this is our God. We have waited for him and he will save us. This is the Lord, Jehovah. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Yes. Um, and so again, as 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 much as divine violence can make us uncomfortable, you know, you, we got to imagine that if he didn't act, that would cause its own problems. And we wouldn't have that confidence to know that if we wait in him and trust in him, he will save us and conquer everything that afflicts us. That's uh, very good. And I think it's worth noting, and this might take us back to chapter 10 a little bit, but it's worth noting that sometimes he's saving us from ourselves. Uh, that when we have become so wicked that we are harming others, sometimes we're the one who's harming others spiritually, but we're also harming ourselves spiritually. And God has to humble us in order to get us to quit harming others and quit harming ourselves to humble us, to get us to turn back to him. And that's part of why he's going to send the Assyrians against the Israelites, because the Israelites are a, a spiritual detriment to those around them, but also to themselves. And by humbling them, they will uh, they'll they'll be forced to start to come back to him. And it may be a very long cycle. Uh, we know it is 2,500 years or so. Um, but they will uh, eventually start to come back to him. And then as they do it, because they've been scattered, they can bring everyone else back with them. So this it, it wasn't only good for them. It, it made justice, judgment, whatever uh, good things possible, making things the way they should be in, that everyone has the chance to receive the gospel possible for everyone. So there are a lot of complicated reasons for God's judgment or justice. And I, I really appreciate 
restoration insight, helping us zone in the fact that he's not just full of wrath and feels like he's got to beat someone up to, you know, get it out of him. Um, you know, because people have sometimes read certain scriptures in isolation and pictured God as kind of an abusive human parent, you know, where they're just ticked off and somebody's getting punched, right? And, and restoration scripture really helps us get into God's mindset that, yes, he does sometimes have to punish, sometimes violently, but he does it through tears, right? You picture yes. Moses 7, Enoch's vision of the weeping God when the floods are going to come and he's just bawling over this. He's weeping. Um, it just tears him up that it's come to this, that this is the only way to stop these people from being violent now is to destroy them in the floods. Good. Um, and, and I'll just I'll refer think... our audience back to what we had uh, this discussion. You can go back and find the episode on uh, Moses 7 and on the flood as well. And and uh, we'll have even more discussion on that. But I, I think you're absolutely right. That's a crucial understanding to bring to this table. Yeah. Same thing in Zenus's allegory of the olive tree in the Book of Mormon, I think is great for this because You've got this tree, these trees representing groups of people, right? And he's trying to get the good fruit and he'll dung and prune and transplant and water and do all these things that he can possibly do to get the good fruit. But sometimes the bad fruit is taking over the tree and the only resort he has left is to chop off the branch and burn it, which seems to symbolize, you know, destroying groups of people. Yeah. But what you see, if you read the allegory carefully, that's always a last resort and you see the emotional distress that this causes to the master of the vineyard. He weeps there too and cries, what more could I have done short of burning these bad branches? And you see that, you know, it's a last resort. He hates to do it, but it's he's trying to save the, the good branches because if he just lets the trees be and doesn't interact uh, intervene, then you see cases of this where the, the bad fruit just takes over and the whole thing dies. Yeah. And, you, you know... Like there's the case where you had the, the one branch that was good, the one branch that was bad. He proposed burning the bad branch. The servant said, no, let's wait a little longer. So he agreed. He doesn't like burning it. But then when they go back, the bad branch took over the good branch and it withered away and died. And the Lord of the vineyards basically says, I'm responsible for this. It's because I didn't act that these people died. And you wonder what was his responsibility to those people on the good branch? Were they expecting him to save them? And because he didn't want to do divine violence, now they're all dead. Yeah. Um it's it's hard stuff. It is hard. Doesn't... In fact, as a parent, this was sometimes the, my my greatest dilemma. When one child was uh, being too harsh uh, to the other child, how can you stop and and protect the the child that's getting picked on, as it were, uh, and do it in a way that isn't too harsh and causes a rift and a problem with the older child? Well, usually it's older picking on younger, but anyway, uh, and and that often I found was my greatest dilemma. Yeah, but it's it's important to recognize, I think, if you read the prophetic books and the rest of the Old Testament carefully, look for the reasons that God is coming in violent destruction. And usually, I would say it's tied to people hurting other people and the need to stop that rather than simply things that people do that offend God directly. Uh, here's just an and, illustration. And to help those who are are doing the harm, I, I think also yeah. help those. So I'll, I'll encourage my, this is a teaser, but we'll have an extended discussion on this when we get to the book of Hosea, which I think in some ways summarizes the entire Old Testament. Uh, and, and so we'll just look forward to our Hosea discussion. But anyway, keep going. Oh yeah, so here's just one example. So if you go into First Kings, you've got Elijah, the prophet against King Ahab and his queen Jezebel, right? 
And there's two moments where Elijah goes up, shows up to them to promise that God's going to punish them. Um, the first time he goes, he says, you're going to have a famine. You know, things are going to be really hard for several years. There's, the famine's going to be terrible. The second time he goes to them and says, you guys are going down. You're going to die. The dogs are going to lick up your bones. You're, you're not going to have a dynasty anymore. It's just complete death now for these people. And it's interesting to note what provokes both kinds of punishment. For the first punishment, where it's just famine, it's that they're worshiping Baal and idols, right? So that's bad. <laughs> and that causes all sorts of problems, but it's just a famine. But what provokes the now certain death where God is the most upset with them is the story in 1 Kings 21, where you've got this guy named Naboth, who's a poor guy, and he's got his plot of land. And Ahab, as a rich elite guy, wants his plot of land. And Naboth won't give it to him. And so Ahab and Jezebel exploiting their, their power, their money, their political influence. They arrange for false charges against this poor guy. They have him executed unjustly and they steal his land and add it to their own. Um, and that exploitation of other people provokes a much worse response than idol worship, which I think is interesting. Um but I think it shows today, you know, God's not going to destroy you just because you go to Taco Bell on a Sunday, right? <laughs> but if you, you know, if you're hurting people, that's where the line gets drawn. That's where he gets really upset. And you see this throughout the book of Isaiah, right? Where he's making this explicit, like Isaiah chapter three, he's promising he's going to destroy all the leaders of the people and overthrow society and get rid of the rulers. And he tells them repeatedly, it's because they're exploiting the people lower them in society. So like Isaiah chapter three. Um, verse 13, the Lord standeth up to plead and standeth to judge the people. The Lord will enter into judgment with the ancients of his people and the princes thereof, for he have eaten up the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. What mean ye that ye beat my people to pieces and grind the faces of the poor? And that accusation that they're exploiting people, denying them justice in the courts. It, it sounds a lot like the Naboth story, actually. Yeah. Um, in principle here, but he says this repeatedly that this is what's this is why the Assyrians are going to come. This is why society is going to be turned upside down. It's because of the exploitation and the systemic oppression that's happening, not helping other people, hurting other people. Yeah. And I, I think they're both sides of that coin. I, I think that the, the most egregious things are the exploitation, but there's also a lack of helping the way that they should help that he mm -hmm. repeatedly comes out against both in Isaiah and say Amos and and so on. But this idea that you're not helping people that you should be helping, and that's also uh, a, a crime against humanity, as it were, yeah. uh, and and against God. I would add in here, uh, you see it a little bit in in the uh, Old Testament. I think you see it even more strongly in the Book of Mormon that God, the, the most egregious offense to God, seems to be when you are hurting people because they're righteous and doing God's will. And that really uh, becomes grounds for God moving in and doing something. So hurting, doing uh, offenses against God, that's bad. Hurting other people, very bad. Hurting other people because they're righteous and doing God's will, very, very, very bad. Right. Uh, and and that's when he uh, we find him stepping in and burning entire cities and whatever else because they were stoning the prophets and and killing the righteous. So. Yeah. So going back to Isaiah 13 and the chapters that follow, again, lots of prophecies of death and destruction against various nations. Out of context, 
you know, that looks like a God of wrath who's just out getting people. And some, but so the, if you read there carefully, I think you'll pick up this pattern that there's often these accusations of injustice and oppression. And that's so much there that even in cases where that's not explicit, where it just has a little prophecy that says, you know, you guys will be destroyed. I think it's implied there in the background the whole time yeah. that this is God's MO, right? That this yeah. is how he works. He's not out destroying the Egyptians or the Babylonians just because they're idol worshipers or they're doing the Sabbath wrong or these things like that. They're hurting people. They're hurting people. They've been warned. There's a there's there's suffering going on that they're causing. And God just can't watch his kids get beat up and hurt and killed and enslaved for forever without being moved rightly so justly so in his mercy to go save these people and i think when you see it that way these chapters go from oh no this god of wrath is just so terrible <laughs> to you you recognize the mercy and the love that is behind all that that he he's coming in destruction but it's because he's being forced to do that as an act of love and rescue uh, beautifully said and i think i think we can tie this in and and illustrate this well uh, we'll tie it in with this idea we were talking about earlier of multiple fulfillments or finding more than one way to look at something. And and I think this is the, maybe the easiest one if we were to look at chapter 13 and 14, uh, which I think this interpretation is given in the chapter headings. Everyone seems to get this, but it's it's literally about Babylon. right? That's the original context. That's what it's literally about. And that Babylon, who will become a nation that uh, it takes over all their neighbors and oppresses them mightily. And then, but it, it's short-lived and very quickly it's overthrown by the uh, Persians. And we've already covered this when we did the historical chapters, right? Uh, and people will look at it and say, wow, we thought you were so tough, but look, you're nothing now. You're destroyed and broken down. But that, and so that has a literal original context that we should understand. But then it has a symbolic context in Satan, right? And that, and and we get that, uh, in, especially in chapter fourteen, uh, verse twelve, when we say, "How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning?" And and that's kind of a clue for Latter Day Saints. Ah, uh, the, the, there's a comparison to Satan here, um, and that should remind us. Then, aren't we glad that God is going to stop Satan from oppressing us? Aren't we glad that at some point, even though he is having a heyday right now in bringing about all sorts of suffering and grief in all sorts of ways, that at some point we look at him and say, wow, you've become nothing. And I'm not making I'm not saying he's nothing now. He has real power. Let's let's be clear. It's, it's scary. We should be doing everything we can to protect ourselves from falling prey to Satan. But uh, at some point, God conquers him. And he becomes nothing. And I'm so glad for that. I am so, mm -hmm. so glad for that. And if we want to make another application to our times too, I think looking at the pattern of how the Old Testament prophets talk about this, it can be eye-opening for us to think about, you know, as we prepare for our own day of the Lord, the second coming and the destruction that's going to happen, what's the best way to go about preventing that? Um, and you just look at God's priorities there. Um are we helping people? Are we fixing injustice? Are we caring for the oppressed and the marginalized in our society? That's clearly right. where the Old Testament prophets had their targets on that. 
Yeah. Um, and the way you hear some people talk today, they'll be like, you know, they'll talk about the U.S. is sliding downhill, you know, and we're going to hell in a handbasket. But the way they'll talk is that the fact that McDonald's is open on a Sunday is almost a bigger problem than our issues of helping poverty in our country or helping refugees or helping people get access to medical care, those kind of things. And you almost wonder sometimes if the, the priorities are getting wrong because the Old Testament prophets often front the oppression of people as the top priority. And they'll actually um, almost de-emphasize uh, Israel's fidelity to the ritual things, right? The prophets will say like, I'm tired of the rivers of blood and the barrels yeah. of oil. Stop bringing all the bullocks and the rams to me. I'm sick of the sacrifices. Like they're actually doing that stuff right. But as yeah. they're hurting other people and not helping people, that's that's the a major problem. Um, even, even Isaiah Jesus, brings that up in Isaiah chapter one, right? You, okay, yeah. you're doing all this stuff and it's not helping me, but you're not helping the poor. Uh, and and maybe I'll just throw in, I, I 500% agree with what you're saying. I don't think either one of us are trying to make this a political statement about, uh, is it supposed to be the government doing this as opposed to us as individuals and through the church and so on? I, I don't think that's our emphasis. I think it's our heart. Do yeah. we want to help those who need help, refugees, those who can't uh, help get medical care, those who can't feed themselves, those who can't clothe themselves. And if you do want to help them, what are you doing? I don't care if you're working through the church or through Goodwill or, uh, I, you know, you, you, there are a thousand organizations that can help with this, or you can just go around yourself personally and doing it. It's, it's a matter of your heart. And are you willing to give up your uh, comfort and ability and so on to help someone who really needs the help. Well said. And, you know, I, I, I'm not just speculating that old Testament prophets, when they say this, that it's relevant to the second coming. Cause um, you know, other scriptures make that connection explicit for us. Like when Jesus oh, yeah. comes in third Nephi, he quotes Malachi, <laughs> an old Testament prophet in this exact mode. Right. And Jesus quotes Malachi to say, this is you know, there's a latter day fulfillment to hear. And he talks about coming in judgment and destruction at the last day. And like, uh, so I'm reading the third Nephi version here, third Nephi 24, verse five, I will come near to you in judgment and I will be a swift witness against. And then he names, you know, what kind of things he's going to come uh, be upset about. And it includes adulterers and false swearers, things like that. But he also talks about social problems. Um, those that oppress the hireling in his wages, like exploiting workers and things like that. Those that oppress the widows and the fatherless. So these disadvantaged groups that you should be helping, but you're not. And that turn aside the stranger. Um, the Hebrew word ger there is often translated as refugee or, you know, yeah. migrant worker, things like that. Yeah. So someone who didn't naturally live there and has come in in some other way. Yeah. So, you know, as in, I'm not trying to say it's not important that we teach the things like Sabbath observance and things like that. I don't hope no one didn't get that impression. <laughs> we should do those things, too. But we also can't ignore the fact that he has specifically promised to come in judgment against people who exploit other people and who don't help people in disadvantaged situations. That is a top priority for him. And the scriptures are very clear that if anything is going to provoke his wrath, that's way at the top of the list. Yeah. Agreed. And Isaiah uh, has has uh, plenty to say about it himself. So, yeah. Uh, well, thank you, Josh. Uh, it's a really useful discussion. Uh, we're going to see, you know, uh, in these chapters, 13 through 20, God coming out in judgment against Israel's enemies and also against Israel and Judah. 
Uh, and uh, there's some pretty graphic descriptions uh, of Moab that that people are destroyed. It's not clear. And, and uh, you know, if you want more details of this, you can either uh, research online, you can listen to other podcasts. I'll even throw out there. You could read my commentary, but um, you could. Uh, it's a good you, you one. Know, recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. But uh, but Moab, uh, it, there are cities in Moab that are destroyed, depending on how you read it, in one day or overnight. Um, uh, right. But I mean, and then they howl and you can hear it 30 miles away that, because it's such uh, terrible destruction that they, they howl that loudly and so on. I mean, he in fact, uh, two of these prophecies against these other nations are I, I they're the only times I can think of where Isaiah says, you know, uh, watching this vision was painful for me. Like uh, seeing what is going to happen to these people hurt me. It It, it, it made me come undone. It was so bad what I saw. Um, and uh, it's both against the people around them and against Israel and Judah. And sometimes there and we saw this in chapter 10, but we'll see it elsewhere. The tool of of bringing these people down, Assyria, also has its own problem. So then God will bring Assyria down and that will be Babylon. And then Babylon has its problem. So he'll bring Babylon down. Right. And uh, I mean, anyone who is oppressing. Uh, and we get this kind of little uh, circuit like we have in the Book of Mormon where it says, well, I'll, I'll use the Lamanites to humble your people. But the Lamanites might need to be humbled as well. Right. Um, and that's what you see with the Syrian Babylon. They'll humble your people, but they need to be humbled as well. And so God will bring uh, everyone to justice and make everything right. And so there's enough of that in this reading uh, and enough warning against what's going to happen to Judah that I think this topic is really, really important. So thank you, Josh, mm -hmm. for that. Yeah, thank you. And uh, we'll just encourage our audience to, to keep uh, taking advantage of all those tools around you and uh, see what uh, I think we're going to just get more out of Isaiah this year than ever before. And uh, if you think this conversation might be helpful for people in understanding that, share it with them and uh, let us know how it's helpful to you. So uh, thank you and have a great day.